Do you know where you were on August 23rd, 2011, around 3 p.m.? 2, 3 p.m. My guess is that most of you have no idea what happened on that day. But I'll never forget it. That was the first time I had ever experienced being in an earthquake. I was living in Washington, D.C. I was not living in California. This was one of the largest earthquakes east of the Mississippi in United States history that we have recorded. The earthquake was just outside of Washington, D.C. in a small town in Virginia. It was a 0.6 something on the Richter scale. And we felt it in our homes in D.C. It was quite humorous, actually, not scary or intense. At first, everything was shaking, obviously, because I was feeling the tremors of an earthquake. But we were living in this small, tight, compact condo in Washington, D.C., and it was really hard to fit anything. If you were there, like the kitchen was, here's the sink, and then you turn around, and then that's like all the room you have. It's very tight, small living arrangements as city apartments and condos are, if you're not aware. Well, we had a washer and dryer that was crammed into a closet in the upstairs, and every time we turned on the dryer, it would shake the whole house. So immediately, I was like, who's doing laundry? But then I went upstairs, and I realized the dryer's not on, and the house is still shaking. It, it was a really strange experience. I had no idea what was going on. It was not severe enough where we were at that things started breaking and falling down, and I started praying to God for my life. Although there was much damage done in the surrounding D.C. area. I remember them closing down the Washington Monument to make sure that things were okay with its structure. There were a few other older buildings that needed to be repaired in D.C. It reminded me how quickly things can become unstable. The very ground that you are living on can shake underneath of you. Is that not one of the most perfect metaphors for how quickly things just start to come undone around you? I think the earthquake is a perfect illustration of the instability that we see the church in Philadelphia experiencing in Revelation chapter 3. It's not just an opening illustration that I bring up this earthquake story. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, no, not the one in Pennsylvania and the United States, the older Philadelphia, the one in now what is modern-day Turkey. Its proximity to an active volcano meant that it experienced several devastating volcanoes. By the time the hearers of the letter that we're about to read from Jesus from John, who wrote Jesus' words, that is. By the time they got this letter, they had just recently, in AD 17, had such a terrible earthquake. The whole city was decimated. The governor of that city, Tiberius, he decided that it was no longer necessary for the citizens of Philadelphia to pay taxes anymore because that would just be hurting them so badly. Imagine that, the Roman government not demanding taxes. Cities like Sardis were close by, a city that we looked at last Sunday. 
but they were economically strong and capable. They were able to get going again. Philadelphia was not in that situation. And this is the background we need to keep in mind as we read this letter from Jesus. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. This is on page 1029 in the black Bibles that are in front of you. When I refer to chapters, it's the larger number in the text, and then there's these smaller numbers. Those are the verse numbers. The plan every Sunday here at Embassy Church is that we dive into God's Word, that you're not hearing mostly from me, Phil, but that as we open God's Word, you'll hear from God. And so we want you to see this for for yourself with your own eyes. So that's why we encourage you to open the Bibles. We're going to take all of our points straight from these texts. I'm going to read verses 7 and following to the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to take our attention this morning slowly, verse by verse. We'll take two verses at a time. I have three points for your consideration this morning through this text. First, we're going to consider how to find security in spite of your small size, external appearances. So security in the size of the church. That's point one. Point two, in verses nine and ten, we're going to see they need to find security even in their suffering, even in the midst of opposition Jesus comforts them and gives them security even in suffering. Point number three, ultimately they need to find their greatest security in their salvation. Let's take point number one, verses seven through eight. We have the relevant introduction that we looked at again last week. All of these introductions have meaning to them for the specific historical setting of this congregation. So the introduction in verse 7, he says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. We see that this is really relevant and specific to them because when you read verse 8, he repeats himself. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. 
And at that point you're saying, yeah, you just kind of said that. And that's because I think we're supposed to link verse 7 and 8 together. So I want us to start by first considering the next sentence. Notice that he says, I know who you are, I know about your works, and I know that you have but little power. Now what does that mean? Obviously it could mean that as a city, these people have little economic status. They have been decimated by all kinds of earthquakes. We study history and it seems as if this city had a coming and going of its citizens because nobody wanted to stay in a place that was always torn apart by earthquakes. So it could have been that just economically they had not much. But he's talking to the church. The other thing we know about this city is that it had a very strong Jewish community. And then you start thinking about what we're about to hear in the later verses, about that synagogue of Satan, how they will come and bow down before your feet. There seems to be more a focus on the smallness of their size in comparison to the vast strength of that Jewish community and how they are ostracized, how they're rejected and not accepted in light of that. So let's just pause right there. If we take all of these letters and we look at the way Jesus talks to these churches, we've entitled this series, Jesus' Marks of a Healthy Church. I think it's pretty safe to say right here in this letter that Jesus does not mark the health or the significance of a church based on its size numerically. Size does not determine significance. But we live in America where size means significance. Bigger is better. The bigger the church, the more successful it must be. As we contrast this church with the church in Sardis, look back at chapter 3. Remember chapter 3 verse 1 where he said, I know your reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. On the outside, the church in Sardis seems like it was going really well. Call them the mega church of today. They've got multiple sites and campuses. There are pastors on video screens everywhere. He's traveling all around the country, etc., etc., etc. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead on the inside. Here you have a church that seems to be small in power, small in number, small in size, but yet he gives no words of condemnation only commendation, meaning Jesus is only giving words of encouragement and hope and comfort. He only does that twice in all of these seven letters. Isn't it interesting that both of the times he does it, it's with churches that are suffering. Churches that seem to the rest of the world, externally speaking, is really not that significant. So as you come into this gathering, are you immediately thought, oh, this is a small church. Well, it depends on where you come from. Some places around the world, this would be the biggest church in their entire country. Here in Chicago, it is not the biggest church. You know, I hear this quite often from people. Well, the church has grown in the last three years, Pastor Phil. We must be doing something right. We have more people than we did three years ago. We started with 24. Now look at us. Really? Are we determining our health because there's more people now than there were three years ago? Friends, our significance, our health is not determined by our size. We have to, as Christians, especially living in America, beat this into our heads. We need to be reminded this again and again. 
Jesus does not look at the external appearances that man looks at. He looks at our hearts, and he asks, are you faithful to the gospel? Isn't that what he sees here in this church? Look again at verse 8. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You see how Jesus is commending them. He is excited about what's going on in the church in Philadelphia. Embassy Church, are you content at being faithful with the gospel until Christ returns and we don't grow in size numerically? We're faithful with the gospel. We are sending out. Maybe we keep sending people out so much so that we never actually add to our Sunday morning attendance numbers? What if we determined our success not by our seating capacity, but by our sending capacity? This Sunday, as we send out two from our midst, and they fly overseas this Wednesday. Are we sad because, oh, they're leaving, and we now have two empty seats? Or are we celebrating about our desire to be faithful to the gospel and not deny his name? This is certainly applicable to us as a corporate witness, but I think it would be amiss if we did not ask all of us individually, do you consider your significance as an individual Christian, as a person, even if you're here today and you're not a Christian? How do you determine success? How do you determine your value and worth? I bet if you probe that question a little longer today, you'll find that it's by what you do, it's by what you have, and it's all external appearances. And what happens when the earthquakes come in your world and start shaking all that up and it all crumbles down? What do you have then? All of us want to be defined by what we do. I'm Pastor Phil. My identity is in being a pastor. Well, what if I'm not a pastor anymore? I have no identity anymore? Well, I'm in a father. What if my children die? Well, I'm a husband. What if I lose my wife? have no value, significance? You need to ask those questions yourself. Honestly, do business with your own heart and ask and examine. Do you find significance in your external appearances? Just like this church should not be finding their significance in those things, they should be finding them in Jesus Christ. Notice that Jesus wants them to find security in him. That's why he links verse 7 with verse 8. He wants them to take their gaze off themselves and put their gaze on his amazing character. He is the holy one, the true one who has the key of David. Let's take those one at a time because they're all sweet. First, the holy one. Now, it certainly means that Jesus is holy. He's cut apart. The word holy means to be cut, to cut off from something. So imagine a piece of paper and you cut a piece of paper off and so it's separate, to be separate from That's what Jesus is. He is so cut off, so holy, so separate from us humans and the rest of the earth. That's true. But this phrase here, holy one, we read earlier in Isaiah chapter 60. This phrase is a phrase used of the Messiah, the holy one. They will call you the holy one. It's a phrase used throughout the Old Testament to talk about the coming Messiah. And if you remember the stories around Christmas, when Jesus was born, the angel said to Mary, he will be the holy one. Read that in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. So Jesus is the coming Holy One, set apart and holy as the Messiah. 
Secondly, he is the true one. He is faithful to all of his promise. Not just that he is the authentic, true Messiah, but that he is the faithful Messiah that fulfilled all of God's promises. They find their yes and their amen in him. He's true to his word. But lastly, this is the most relevant and pertinent of all of the things that he says about himself in this introduction. He says, I have the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. That's what he then again repeats in verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. What's going on here? This is a word for word. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. Write that down. Read it later. Isaiah 22, verse 22. In Isaiah chapter 22, the context here is that there is a man who is the key holder to David's kingdom. And he has been unfaithful, and so the Isaiah prophet comes in and speaks judgment and says, you are going to lose your key to the throne room of David. So get the picture here. Imagine a kingdom with a castle. Imagine that there is the throne room where the king alone is allowed to be. Then there's a guard outside of the door, and he's the one who holds the access. He holds the keys. This man was unfaithful with his duty. So the prophet Isaiah says, no, I'm going to take that away, and I'm going to give it to someone else. They will have the key of David. He will have access into the throne room of David, and he will open and no one will be able to shut. He has been given authority. This is an extremely important position in the kingdom of David. And this, my friends, is all types and shadows for the greater David, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who holds the key, not just to a throne room here on earth, but the key to the very door to heaven itself. That's what he says here when he says, I have an open door. Many commentators and pastors have preached this text and have said that the open door is probably referring to the open door of evangelism. Now that that might be partly true, and Paul does in his letters talk about the open door of evangelism that's been given me to the Gentiles and all of the rest of the world. I don't think that's what John means here. I think John is talking about the open door to the throne room of God. Now why do you think that, Pastor Phil? Well, because I've read all of Revelation, and you should too. Turn to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. You read the rest of the chapter, and it is the throne room of God. I don't think it should be missed. Read all of the letter in its context. The door that is open is the door to heaven itself, into the throne room of God's very holy presence. And how do you get in? Look to Jesus. Not your external appearance circumstances, or even your own sins can keep you from that door if you look to Jesus. I read this week a morning devotion from Charles Spurgeon. He has these wonderful devotionals called Morning and Evening. I want to read you an excerpt from one of those. I think this is what Jesus is doing with his opening introduction to help them see you should find security and comfort in me by looking to me. I have the keys can take you to heaven. I will open the door and no one can shut it. Listen to these words of Charles Spurgeon. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to turn your eyes away from yourself and to Jesus Christ. It is the work of Satan to do just the opposite, 
he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, oh, your sins are too great to be forgiven. You have no faith. You're not repenting enough. You'll never be able to finish your race and continue to the end. You do not have the joy of his children. You have been wavering of your hold on Christ. Friends, all of these things are thoughts about yourself. You will never find your comfort or surety by looking within. The Holy Spirit turns your eyes entirely away from yourself and he tells us, you are nothing. Christ is everything. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold on Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your faith in Christ. Though that is the instrument, it is the blood and the merits of Christ that saves. Therefore, do not look so much at your hand that you are holding Christ. Look at Christ. Look not to your hope, but look to Christ. Look not at your faith, but look at Christ. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. He is the source of your hope. You will never find happiness by looking at your prayers, by your doings or your feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking to Christ. Keep your eyes simply on him and let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercessions be fresh on your mind. When you wake in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. Oh, let not your hopes and fears between you and Jesus follow hard after him and he will never fail you. This is what he is doing to this church. You have but little power, but look to me, I have the keys. Look to me, I'm the Holy One. Look to me. Put your gaze on me. Look to Christ. I am the door and no one can open or shut the door that I have opened. Which brings us to our next point, security and suffering found in verses 9 and 10. When you look at these verses, I think it helps explain why he talks about this door imagery. In verse 9 it says, Behold, I will make, the, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who will dwell on the earth. It seems like this strong Jewish community had a few of their Members come to faith in Jesus Christ. So how did the Jewish community treat them after they then gave faith and allegiance to Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One, the True One? Now we don't know for sure, but I would speculate they were kicked out of the community. You're not allowed back in our synagogues. You give allegiance to Jesus, we want nothing to do with you. I might be reading between the lines, but it does seem as if Jesus is saying that synagogue where all those Jewish people meet for worship, that is a synagogue of Satan. Now, this is not anti-Semitism. We saw this again in the church, earlier in church in Smyrna. He says the same things. Look at your eyes just up the page at chapter 2, verse 9. I know your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, 
but are a synagogue of Satan. Why is Jesus calling a bunch of Jews who gather together for worship a synagogue of Satan? That seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? It's because Jesus understands from the whole flow of the Old Testament that his church who follows Jesus would be the budding flower of Israel's ultimate purpose and plan to begin with. So to reject Jesus is to reject their very purpose. The church does not replace Israel. It is the fruit of all that Israel is and was. And so they are not the true Israel. As Paul says, read Romans chapter 2 sometime if you're wondering more context behind these statements. True Jew is a true that is one that is a Jew inwardly, not externally, outwardly by circumcision or obeying commandments or going to synagogues. This Jewish community seemed to have that mistaken. And so he calls them a synagogue of Satan. But did you notice the promise? The promise that he would make these people who were shutting doors in their faces, rejecting them, he was giving them the promise that these people would get turned upside down and they would end up bowing down before your feet. Now, at first glance, that might seem really strange to you. Like, wait, bowing down before Christians? Did I just hear you say that right? Yes, that's what the text is saying. They will bow down before you, not bow down before me. Why are people bowing down before Christians? They should bow down only before Jesus. Didn't your whole first point, Pastor Phil, say, look to Jesus, look to Jesus? The reason is because all of these imagery that you're getting in Revelation chapter 3 is coming from Isaiah. Isaiah 22, verse 22, remember? The Holy One, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14. It's in Isaiah chapter 60 and several other places. You heard it earlier in the service. Let me read it to you one more time. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, listen very carefully to these words and see if they don't apply perfectly to this context in Philadelphia. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. So first, you see that there's a prophecy that the sons of affliction, the people who are causing harm against Christians, they will eventually come and bow before you, and all who despised you will bow down at your feet, and then they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion, and the Holy One of Israel. All of those verses are being picked up here in our text. So it seems like these words in Revelation 3 have Isaiah 60 verse 14 on their mind. And they're saying, remember the prophets when they spoke of a day when those who were trying to curse you, they'll actually end up bowing down before you because I'm going to bless you. It would be like seeing Islamic terrorists who are trying to kill a bunch of Christians get converted to Jesus and bow down and confess Christ is Lord. You guys were right all along. Imagine that here. Christians facing persecution, and the very ones persecuting them, God promises, I will bring them to salvation. Could you get much better than that? Complete reversal here. Flip it around on their head. The people that are keeping you out of the synagogue and shutting the door in your face, well, guess what? You hold the keys through Christ to the open door into heaven and no one can shut it, not even them. Such words of comfort and security. So in your suffering, Christian, find your hope in Christ 
and his promises. So many of us struggle, and I'm sure they did too. If we're facing all of this persecution, does Jesus really love me? How sweet are the words of verse 10. Sorry, verse 9. I will make them bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Notice that it's in the past tense. It doesn't mean that Jesus stopped loving them. But it's that because I have so loved you on the cross of Calvary, because I have already loved you by coming to the earth, living a perfect life, dying a death that you deserved, and taking your place, resurrecting from the dead and offering to all of you the door into eternal life, I have loved you. And when they come and bow down, they'll realize, yeah, I loved you a lot. Doesn't it remind you of Romans chapter 8? So many of us, things start getting difficult in our lives. The church starts facing persecution. We start getting trials and difficulties. Well, God would not let this happen to me if he loved me. No, friends, that's nowhere in the New Testament. It's actually the exact opposite message. You should feel confident that he loves you because you're one of his children. You're facing suffering and persecution. Because there's nothing that can separate you from his love. There's nothing that can shut the door to heaven. No death, no trials, no persecutions, not famine, not the sword, not nakedness, not peril. Not things in this life or the life to come. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Know that that's done. It's finished. I already have loved you in the past. Do you already feel done, past tense, he has loved me, and that's finished? I tell my kids almost every night, daddy loves you, mommy loves you, most of all, Jesus loves you. And then I ask them, and kids, how do we know that Jesus loves us? And they say different things almost every night. But almost every night I tell them, God demonstrated his love for you that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. You can know right now, children, Christ loves you. He did love you, and he always will because he paid it all. Do you know that today? Are your present circumstances, trials, and sufferings make you doubt the love of God? My guess is that you're not looking at the cross. Is there anything that shouts the love of God more than the love of Jesus? We like to think that if Jesus loved us, he would take us away from our pain and suffering. He would just end it. And that's actually what some people think verse 10 means. Fine, well-meaning Christians, and I mean this in the most sincere way, fine, well-meaning Christians think that verse 10 means that because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will then take you from the hour of trial, and they mean this to be a, a rapture from tribulation. Now, friends, you can believe that. There is no reason for you to not be a Christian and believe those things. I just don't think that's what this text is saying. And one of the main reasons is because the only place that we find this language Anywhere else in Scripture is on the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 17. And his prayer in John chapter 17, especially when those words come up, is not that I would take them out of the world like evacuation, but that I would keep them in the world and they would stay faithful through it. I believe verse 10 is not about evacuation of the Christians because they've been faithful, but preservation through the suffering, that you know I have loved you, and you don't have to doubt my love for you even through the suffering. I will keep you. I will help you persevere to the end. 
so they can find great comfort in knowing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his present power to preserve them to the end through suffering. They find security in Christ through their suffering. That's our second point. Let's move to our third and final point. You should find, ultimately, great security in salvation. This is in verses 11 through 13. It says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These verses are super sweet. If you're not dialed in, like focus up, wake up, these verses are super, super sweet. There's just rich, dripping with promises that will help you understand what God has promised for you as a Christian. First, notice that he tells them and exhorts them to hold on because Christ is coming. Hold on, hold fast so that no one will seize your crown and When we think about the crown imagery, it seems as if that's the crown of eternal life, that you're going to be crowned. So that's not super encouraging. What? I have to hold on, because if I don't hold on, my crown might be taken away. Now, one thing we need to make sure you understand is that Christianity is not a religion where you pray an incantation or magic words, and it's like a genie that you rub a bottle and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Ta-da, I'm a Christian. And now you get a crown, and then you get to keep it forever, and that's what eternal security means. I'm saved, so I'm always saved. No, no, the New Testament is replete and full of all kinds of examples of warnings and admonitions to tell you persevere to the end. Those who are true disciples are those who finish the race. Those who love me are those who kept the word to the end. And that's what we have exactly right here. Hold fast so that no one will take your crown away, so that you won't lose your crown. Now, I want to get back to that thought in just a minute, in case some of you might be thinking, what if I don't hold on very tight? Well, remember the words of Charles Spurgeon? Stop looking at your hold and your grasp. Look to him. But more on that in just a second. Look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So here's why you want to hold on. Let me give you some reasons for why you'd want to persevere and finish your race. First, he's going to make the church a pillar in the temple of my God. Pillar. Why is that helpful? Well, because Philadelphia has all kinds of earthquakes. Pillars probably fell down. And he's saying, I'm going to give you a pillar. And it's going to stand firm to the end forever. And it's going to be in my temple. The church then is the temple, as we'll learn throughout the New Testament. That's why we read 1 Peter chapter 2 earlier in the service. The church is the temple of God. And so he's just saying that I'm going to make you a pillar in that temple. It's metaphorical, symbolic language here. So that's the first reason. I'm going to make you a pillar. Never shall he go out of it And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now, this is awesome. The church in Philadelphia is being told you're going to get a new name. Why is that incredibly relevant? 
Do you remember in AD 17 when I said that there was an earthquake that decimated the city and the governor even said no more taxes? Remember that? Caesar himself saw the struggle of Philadelphia and decided to rename Philadelphia after that earthquake Neo-Caesarea, the new Caesar. This is my new city, he says. Now, it didn't actually help them overcome their economic struggles, but he was trying to give them a little bit of encouragement. Do you see what's happening here? Caesar gave Philadelphia a new name to try and comfort them in their struggles hoping that it would save that city. Jesus says, I'll I'll one-up that Caesar. I'll take that and I'll raise you. I'm going to make them a pillar in my temple. I'm going to write the name of God on them. I am going to call them the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. Read Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and following. It's the city of the new heavens, the new earth coming down out of heaven dressed as a bride and it's a city bride. It's a strange metaphor. Think of a a big city but dressed in a gown. That's Revelation 21. It's saying that the church, the bride, the bride of Christ, the bride of God's people is coming down out of heaven and it's dressed beautifully, ready to meet heaven and earth coming back together again. And that's the great hope that he is promising them here. I'm going to give you, Philadelphia, that new name. Who wants the name Neo-Caesarea? I'll take the name of Christ. Are you seeing all through this letter that he is encouraging them again and again to find their identity and their source of strength, hope, and comfort in the midst of suffering and persecution and doors shut in their face? Find your identity and security in me. The Heidelberg Catechism has the most helpful opening question. If you're not familiar, how many of you, let's just take a quiz. How many of you have ever heard of the Heidelberg Catechism? So about 30, 40% it looks like. A catechism just means a structure of teaching where you ask questions to little kids in particular, and then they're supposed to repeat back the answer. It's a way to systematically teach them truths. The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the sweetest. So I ask you, what is your only comfort in life and death? And your answer is supposed to be this, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair of my head can fall without the will of the Father in heaven. In fact, all things work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Imagine memorizing that every day. If you want the short answer, what is your only comfort in life and death that you are not your own but you belong to Christ? That's the answer. So, let's finish. I left something hanging. I said, what happens if some of you are feeling like, I don't know if I'm doing so well as a Christian and I don't know if my grip is falling off and I might lose my crown. Have you all ever heard of the great tightrope master Blondin? I think is how you pronounce it. 
who went to the Niagara Falls and said, guess what? I can cross the Niagara Falls on this tightrope. You heard of this story? Maybe more of you have heard of this than the Heidelberg Catechism? <laughs> anyway, it's a famous story because it says that he asked, how many of you believe? And they all were like, yeah, because he was famous. He was like the best of the best. And then he said, if you really believe, I need a volunteer, and I will carry you on my back. And the crowd goes, shh, silence. That part of the story I think people have heard. The part of the story that is told very often that, hey, if you really believe, well, then you'd jump on his back, wouldn't you? But there's another part of the story, and I think it's true from my reading, but I'm not sure. Either way, it illustrates this point beautifully. Right after that, Blondin knows that he can carry a person on his back, so he encourages his manager to do it. So, the manager decides he would. And he goes and he gets himself ready, and then all of a sudden he climbs out, clinging to Blondin's back, holding on for his literal life, 15 stories above the rolling surface of the Niagara River. He looks down and sees a wire. It's about the size of his wrist. He thinks that he and Blondin are going to die. As they start walking, he feels a subtle shift in his balance, and the manager is compelled to try and help Blondin with the shifts. The manager is close to his death when he feels him start going this way. He's like, let me overcompensate this way. He sees the end of his days flashing before his eyes, watering, thrashing, spraying up to him. And this is the sweet part. When wind blows again, another shift in the balance, and he feels he's about to die. He tries to save himself as he holds tightly on to Blondin. Blondin stops walking and starts talking. Above the sound of the water, the manager hears Blondin shouting to him every word, an exclamation. Stop! Just cling to me. If you want to live, just cling to me. The manager listens because he knows in that moment Blondin is the expert. He's the fool. He doesn't know what he's doing. So he adjusts the grip on his hand, recommits the muscles of his arms and legs to encircling all of Blondin's body. He gives up trying to balance and save himself, and he tries to let Blondin take him to the end. He gives up. He holds on. And Blondin walks all the way across to Great Chief. You see what's happening? You have to hold on. It's required. If you believe in Jesus this morning as your security in life and in death, you've got to climb onto the tightrope and get on his back. You have to. But don't think that you're saving yourself. It is Jesus who opens the door. It is Jesus that gets you through. It is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Stop trying to hold on to Jesus and counter your weight. Just hold him and rest. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ this morning. 
the holy one, the true one, the one who holds the keys of David and the door that he opens that no one can shut. And I pray that this morning, this congregation of people, no matter how big or small we are, we would find our security and our strength, our comfort in Christ. Help us to believe these words of Jesus, apply them to our lives, and may they make all the difference even this week as we are tempted again and again to find our worth and our significance and so many other external things. We thank you that Christ is not already we thank you that he is not that he is he is all and that he is everything but not just that God we thank you God that he has offered to us now to be everything for us now and we pray that he would be in Christ's name amen